Where does yesterday's future, which is already here, ready here, ready here, ready here, meet today's future, which is about to happen, and tomorrow's future, which could be just minutes away? Welcome to Technology Revolution, the future of now. Where host Bonnie D. Graham asks savvy futurists for their predictions about the tech-driven trends that are shaping our future right now. Here's your host, who will take us into the future of now, Bonnie D. Graham. Yes, indeed. Thank you to Ryan Treasure, the voice of our intro, VP of Operations at Voice America Radio. I'm Bonnie D. in the house, and we've got an exciting show for you. Anybody who's ever had an idea about a new widget, that's what we used to call it back in the day, a new service, a new product is when should I start a business? Do I go to my family, my friends, my fools and ask them for money to, to start a startup? Will the world love it? Will I be a success? Will I make money? Will I pay off my shareholders? Oh my goodness, or will I have to close in six to 12 months and be terribly embarrassed and very broke? Well, we're going to talk about the future of startups today. I have four experts. I'm calling them my startup gurus on the show with me. Let me give you a couple of buzz quotes to open, and then I will introduce my panel. So I have a quote from the song, You Can Fly, from Peter Pan, the 1953 animated adventure fantasy film produced by Walt Disney Productions. And here's the quote from the song. We can fly, we can fly, we can fly. All it takes is faith and trust. Oh, and something I forgot, dust. Dust, yes, a little bit of pixie dust. Oh my, just let that sink in. Is that what it takes to be a successful startup? Then I have a quote from Dave Thomas. You may remember Wendy's. He's the founder. You may still be eating Wendy's. Here we go. What do you need to start a business? Three simple things. Know your product better than anyone. Know your customer and have a burning desire to succeed. And I should say, Dave, just don't burn the burgers. And then we go to buzz number three, Eric Lag. Eric is my, Eric Simone on the panel here at the top row is my uh, my comedy audience. Buzz number three, this is from Drew Houston, Dropbox co-founder and CEO. He says, don't worry about failure. You only have to be right once. Interesting. We have buzz number four from Michael Arrington, Tech. Crunch founder and co-editor. He said, the best startups generally come from somebody needing to scratch an itch. I'll just let you all think about that. And the last quote is from Jeff Bezos, very much in the news recently, Amazon founder and and CEO. And he said, I knew that if I failed, I wouldn't regret that. But I knew the one thing I might regret is not trying. Ah, there's that fire in the belly. So we have, I want you all to wave when I call your name. We have uh, my good friend and loyal panelist and engager of people for shows, Don Deloche. Don is back. Don, wave hi at Rocker, Rocket Wagon Venture Studios. I still love the name of your company. We have Chris A. Morgan at Lantern Partners. Chris, wave. I don't know if we're using the A today. I only go places with the D for mine in my name. I, never, I won't talk to anybody who forgets the D. Jim Gagnard, I promised to pronounce it French, so he's going to be Jim, Monsieur Gagnard. Jim, welcome at Industrial IoT Studio. I knew I told you I'd make you smile. And Eric Simone at Clearblade Inc. Eric Wave, there we go. And we're going to ask them for their insights on the future of tech startups. When is the right time? And I've been told over the years that the right time is anytime you have the right product, the right place, the right people, the right audience, the right take on what the customers are. Even in bad economies, it's a right time to start a startup. So we're going to find out more. And I want to do again a shout out to Don. Everybody give Don a round of applause. Don engaged these three other wonderful panelists. See, the pressure is on. I called you wonderful panelists on very short notice. And Don is always there for me. So Don Deloach, you're up first. Don, please, there might be Three and a half people in my viewing and listening audience who don't remember you, shame on them. Why don't you talk to them and refresh their memory, who you are, what is Rocket Wagon, what do you do, and what's your passion for startups? Don, welcome back. Yeah, thanks, Bonnie. Um, so I'm Don Deloach. I'm the uh, co-founder and managing partner of Rocket Wagon Venture Studios. Uh, we focus on getting uh, startups from the uh, minimum viable product stage through to commercialization, um, which we would characterize as stage two entrepreneurship. Um, I've been involved with multiple uh, startups over the last 20 plus years, uh, mostly focused on data. And, and in the last 10 years, I've been very, very involved with the Internet of Things community, um, active on uh, you know, boards and in, in IoT related initiatives. I am very passionate about what I would characterize as the progression of cyber physical transformation 
And our focus at Rocket Wagon is not only on bringing experience to support startups on their stage two trajectory, but it's also to add uh, additional domain expertise in terms of IoT and the adjacent technologies that are bringing us to this hyper-connected world. Thank you very much. Hyper-connected indeed. I don't know what it would mean to disconnect anymore, Don. I don't know how you would. There are messages real cyber and subliminal coming at us all the time. Thank you, Don, and welcome back. Again, let's go around the table. Chris Morgan, you're up next. And Chris, I'm going to put you on full speaker view. Would you please do me the honor of introducing yourself to my audience? What do you do? A little bit about Lantern Partners and why are you here? What does startups mean to you? Sure. Um, I'm the founder and one of the managing partners of Lantern Partners. We're a retained senior executive recruiting firm. I happen to run the practice that focuses on recruiting CEOs and their direct reports for technology and technology-enabled services companies, the vast majority of which are either venture capital-backed or private equity-owned. So I'm, I'm here today because I get to work with a lot of startups, and I'm very passionate about the tech tech ecosystem and tech startups generally. I'm constantly amazed by, um, you know, people's abilities to come up with new ideas and new solutions and new outcomes, and more importantly, take them to a market effectively. It's, it's really an amazing thing from my perspective. It's, it's a little bit like music. There are only so many notes, but they keep coming out with new songs somehow. Well, they keep coming out with new business ideas, and it just inspires me every day. Chris, I have to use that quote you just said. That was a quotable moment. And when I send you the audio after the show, I want you to note that you said it at approximately eight minutes into the show. Okay. There's only a limited number of notes. I'm doing a show on music education, the future of music education and music inspiration. If you want to come on that show next week, you're you're welcome (laughs) to come back with that quote. You can help me with the opening. Thank you, Chris Morgan. Pleasure to meet you, Monsieur Gagnard. I'm I'm watching a French detective show and I'm so glad that your name has a French pronunciation. So forgive me. Jim, welcome. Please introduce yourself and what's your passion for startups? Well, thanks, Bonnie. Uh, I've been the CEO of five tech companies, four of those in Silicon Valley. Uh, I have seen the energy and dedication it takes for a founder to try to, as you said, scratch that itch or solve a problem. Uh, I'm also a big believer if you don't swing, it's hard to get a hit. Uh, So I think that startups are phenomenal way to create all sorts of solutions. And with the Internet of Things, the number of possibilities to touch people and businesses is just astronomical. Thank you very much. I hear the excitement there, and I appreciate that, Jim. And we love your background. Uh, Do you know where you are? It looks like there might be a golf course behind you. Is it Scotland? Where is it? That is the Royal Troon Golf Course, Troon, Scotland, the postage stamp golf hole. I said Scotland. I had a guess. I was right. I don't usually know that kind of stuff. It just looks Scottish to me. Thank you very much, Jim. We're glad you're there broadcasting to us live from the golf course. That's royal. And let's go to our fourth panelist, Eric Simone. I think Eric is my laugh audience today because he smiles whenever I try to say something funny and I like you already. Eric, I've just met you 20 minutes ago. Would you please do me the honor of introducing yourself to our audience. Tell them what you do and what's your passion for startups. Eric, welcome. Sure. Thanks, Bonnie. Um, my name's Eric Simone. I'm the founder and CEO of a 14-year startup called ClearBlade here in Austin, Texas, focused on Internet of Things, um, software company where we deliver the power of IoT, Edge, and AI via intelligent assets. So we give business people the software to use the, the, the tools that us nerds understand in a way that allows them to do it without needing to program. So uh, based here in Austin, Texas, though you see Chicago behind me, that's my hometown. It's where Don and I are our buddies. Uh, and I'm actually moving back up that way in a couple months uh, to be close to my other employees. Uh, startups, my favorite topic to talk about. Uh, I did my first startup leaving IBM in Chicago and Oh, gosh, 1994, moved to the Bay Area and then built that company and sold it to a public company here in Austin. And I'll tell you what, if you remember those days, Jerry Maguire was the big movie. I got up at 3 a.m. and wrote my personal manifesto to my uh, new partners and said, look, if I don't do this now, I don't I don't ever want to look back five, 10 years from now and say, 
I should have. And when you have that burning desire to go do something, the best advice I could give anyone is do it. Uh, uh, you've got to have that risk profile. You've got to be able to jump off that cliff. But if you've got that desire, just believe in yourself and go. I like that. Just believe in yourself and go. That's another quotable moment. You can look at the audio track at about 11 minutes in for that one. Eric Simone, I didn't know we had an E at the end of your name that was pronounceable. You should have told me. Simone, Simone, Balone, Balone. No, no, no. no. I want to do it right. I have on some of my shows guests with European names that are 18 letters long with 15 syllables in them, and I do my best to get them right. So thank you all. Nice to meet you all. Now let's go to our opening quotes. Don Delos has sent us a quote from Harder, Better, Faster by Daft Punk. French duo, the song was released in October 2001 as the fourth single from their second studio album, Discovery, and it has a bouncy keyboard riff sampled from the 1979 track Cola Bottle Baby by the funk musician Edwin Birdsong. That's all I'm going to share. Here is the quote. I'm just going to say, Shechet Yeladim, which is what my Hebrew school teacher used to say. Quiet, children. Here's the quote Donna selected from Daft Punk. Work it, make it, do it. Makes us harder, better, faster, stronger. I tried not to sing it, Don. Do you want to sing it for us, Don Deloche? I do not. Yes, thanks. <laughs> uh, so, comment on the quote? Sure. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've been on the show before. I know how that goes. Um it, it, it's just basically kind of what Eric was just saying. You know, if, if, if you just put yourself out there, you're, you're not going to get there by sitting in a room and thinking about it. You got to get out and do it. And if you do it, um, you may do a couple of laps around the track, but every time you're out there doing it, hopefully you're learning from what you do and you're getting better. And, and that's how that describes a startup in a lot of ways. Thank you very much. I am a fan of Daft Punk. Don, um, I'm a drummer, as I, I mentioned to all of you before the show, and there's one of their songs, I'm trying to, I'll find out the name, is just a wonderful song to drum along with, even over the track. A lot of fun. So thank you very much. Dance all night or something like that. Let's go to the quote we have received from Chris Morgan. Chris, I dropped the A, okay, since you're not using it on your, just Chris Morgan. Chris Morgan has sent us a quote from Frank Lucas, played by the iconic Denzel Washington in the movie American Gangster, 2007 American biographical crime film produced by Ridley Scott, fictionally based on the criminal career of Frank Lewis, a gangster from LaGrange, or as Jim would probably say, LaGrange, North Carolina, Jim, I just made you French, who smuggled heroin into the U.S. on American service planes coming back from the Vietnam War before being detained by a task force led by Detective Richie Roberts and Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe starred in the movie. Here is the quote from Frank Lewis in the movie, the loudest one in the room is the weakest one in the room. Oh, my. Chris, talk to me. How'd you pick this one? Well, I look at startups from two different perspectives, right? The the people that build them and run them and the actual businesses and the brands themselves. And maybe this is just as my, these are my Midwestern sensibilities coming through. But I believe that the individuals, the leaders of startups that are the flashiest and loudest and uh, most obvious tend to be um, the least focused on delivering and tend to not have the results needed or wanted by a lot of their investors. And on the brand side, just as a consumer, um, I look at businesses that have very flashy brands, very strong messages, but very weak delivery. Um, and I, I prefer those that uh, are focused, those that are focused on delivery, those that are modest and earnest and hardworking. Thank you very much. Very, very interesting. I appreciate the quote. And let's go to, by the way, there's a TV show called Heist on Netflix that goes through the, the uh, not the fictionalization, but the recounting with actors of actual, some of the biggest heists of money of the, the Pappy Gate. If you remember, uh, Pappy was a liquor in the South and, and the Pappy Gate theft of all that they never could really prove anything. Interesting to see the reenactions of 
from the memory of the people who were there and whether they ended up doing time or not. Let's move on. Jim Gagnard has sent us a quote from Noah Vosen, played by David Strathairn in the movie The Bourne Ultimatum, or Ultimatum, as you might say, 2007 American action thriller film based on the 1990 novel of the same name by the one and only Robert Ludlum. And in the movie, Matt Damon reprises his role as Ludlum's signature character, former CIA assassin and psychogenic amnesiac. Oh my, I forgot those words. Jason Bourne, who continues his search for information about his past. And here is the quote from Noah Vosen. My number one rule is to hope for the best and plan for the worst. And if we were in New York, Jim, we would say plan, here, hope for the best and plan for the worst. Okay, I just gave it a Brooklyn accent. Jim, rescue me. What does this quote mean to us, please? Well, let's think about the entrepreneur, the founder. They truly believe that they can solve a problem, okay? They can address pain. That's the hope for the best. That's what drives them to try to get something done. But we all know that almost every company goes through multiple pivots. Things don't work. You know, a plan is great until the first shot is fired. So my view has always been you obviously need that energy. You need to add energy to the situation to make it work, but you have to be realistic and understand that things can go sideways. There you go. Thank you very much. I think we probably have some movies about sideways. That'll be for another show. Let's go to Eric Simone. I've got it right finally. Thank you for your patience, sir. And his quote is one of our favorites from Ferris Bueller, played by Matthew Broderick in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, 1986 American teen comedy film. I'm always surprised when they describe it as a teen comedy, Eric, because to me it's just iconic about anybody slacking off. It just happened to be teens. I don't know. Uh, Co-produced, written, and, and directed by John Hughes. Hughes wrote the screenplay in less than a week. Filming began in 1985 in September, finished in November. Oh my. It features many Chicago landmarks. I think you know this, including the then Sears Tower, Wrigley Field, and the Art Institute of Chicago. It was Hughes's love letter to Chicago. How nice. And here is the quote. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Eric, talk to me. Well, uh, obviously, uh, my roots are in Chicago. I grew up in what was a John Hughes film, pretty much, up in Libertyville. Um, and I'll tell you, for me, it's about everything you do in life, right? Um, uh, taking that risk and enjoying the journey. And, you know, when you do hard things like startups, when you do hard things like build software, uh, you have many doubters. And uh, I love what Chris's quote was all about because I – totally uh, buy into that the loudest person in the room is typically not uh, the smartest. It's hard work, it's teamwork, and you've got to enjoy it along the way. If Why do we do this? I get asked this by my friends all the time. Why do you do this? And it's because it keeps you young. It's a dynamic industry. You're always learning. It's all, you're always tested. Your brain's got to be on point. And to me, that epitomizes what Ferris Bueller was doing in that John Hughes film was taking advantage of his youth, enjoying Chicago and taking risks. Who, who's, the, who's the sausage king of Chicago and gets in for that reservation? Ferris Bueller does it because he's <laughs> unafraid. And I think you've got to have that mindset to start anything because people aren't going to follow you if uh, one, if, if you don't take that risk and two, if you, if you don't distribute that praise to your team. They've got to want to be there. Thank you very much. I'm just putting the predictions into the chat for all of you so you know where we're going. But before we start our predictions, I'd like to ask a question of all of you. I think I said a very bold statement at the beginning when I was opening the show, and I said something about I've read that, I've heard, I've been advised that even in a downturn economy, it's a good time to ta start a startup. It doesn't matter what the economy is doing. Let, let me just quickly go around the table. Don first, and then Chris, and then Jim, in our usual order, and Eric. What do you think? Is, is there such a thing as a bad economy for startups, or is it more about your solution to that problem that needs to be scratched? Don, what do you think? Just a quick overview. Uh, there can be. There are certain existential threats to a startup that can kill them that would be a function of maybe the economy or a more nuanced uh, way. So, so let's say you're, and I realize this is longer you want, um, like the, the uh, housing crash in 2008. If you're a startup and you're in capital markets 
and, and the market crashes, that's a bad time for a startup. So, that, so yes, it can be. Okay, let's go to Chris Morgan. What do you think? I, I think that I agree with Don, but I think that if the idea is there, the passion's there, and the market is there, um, there's usually going to be enough money there to make it happen. Um, so it's typically a pretty good time to start a startup almost any time. Thank you. Jim Gagnar, what do you think? I think it's, the real issue is how do you react to it? Ooh. Okay. You, you, have, uh, you have your passion. Perhaps your passion has to be pursued for the next year by four people rather than eight based on the economy and something that affects you. Uh, very quickly, one other thing, when everything hit in California in 2000, sure, lots of stuff happened and people just moved around and started different companies. They realize that you just mm-hmm. have to keep moving forward. And the word that we learned in the pandemic is resiliency, right? Agility, being nimble, being digitally transformed, having the ability to pivot on a dime, whether it's yours or somebody else's, just like that with a new business model and doing something else. Thank you, Jim. Eric, talk to me. What do you think about uh, economy, good or bad? I I love what Jim said. It's resiliency. Um, um, Great things are formed under pressure. So the time is whenever you're ready to do it. We all know those people that have talked about doing it for years and they never left that big company, right? Um, Because they're looking for the right winds uh, of change. Look, I've got many experiences here, 94 to 2000 in the Bay Area. Are you kidding me? I could not have had a better uh, backwind. Uh, 2007, uh, when I started this company, I could not have had a worse headwind, right? And and I suffered the dot-com bust like everyone else at a public Mm -hmm. company that bought me trying to not get delisted on the NASDAQ next to the CEO. So um, you're resilient, you survive, you, you, you adapt. And, and, and that's what makes it exciting. It's never boring. Yes, and you keep the ideas coming, right, gentlemen? You just you don't stop the fountain or the font of creativity, of innovation. You don't stop thinking outside the box. What if? Or I could do that better. Or I think people need. Okay, enough from me on the platform here. Let's go to our predictions round. I've already put in a prediction from each of you into the chat, so I'm going to start with Don Deloach and Don's first prediction. Let's go with that. I'm going to read it and then ask you to unpack it. Take about three minutes or so, and then what I'd like to do is if anybody on the panel has a comment for Don about what he predicted, agree or disagree, just raise your hand. Teacher, teacher, call me, call me, and I will call you. That's the benefit of seeing you all on Zoom. If nobody raises their hand by the time Don finishes, I will go to a prediction from Chris and then one from Jim and then one from Eric, round one, and then I'll pick one from each of you for round two. So, Don, prediction number one, you say the notion of the J-curve, and you have to educate me on that, please, Don. I don't know what that is. And the startup's valley of death will spark increased interest and resource allocation focused on leverage experience into the startup equation. Wow. Don, a lot of unpacking needed. Go ahead, please. Yeah. Okay. So the J-curve is basically the trajectory of the the company and the associated cash flows and um, uh, the financial uh, equation for the company. And um, if you so, so the, a company starts, it takes investor capital in, it, it loses money for some time until you eventually get to the point where you cross over, you start uh, have positive cash flow, and you have survivability at that point ostensibly. Um, the interesting thing is that most of the resources in the innovation ecosystem are, are commonly associated with incubators and accelerators. And those are focused on the very first part of that trajectory. And that's getting to the minimum viable product. So the pitch deck, the business plan, um, and then how, how to talk to investors. But having the, having the solution doesn't mean having the company. And while 90% of startups fail, 70% fail in, in what I would characterize as stage two entrepreneurship. That's getting from the minimum viable product to an overall vetted product market fit and, and a repeatable, scalable model. And so, you know, if, if, if you get to, you know, two plus million in, in recurring revenue and you have, uh, you know, 20 production enterprise class customers and a process that works and a, and a product management process that works, you're introducing a, a, a level of sustainability and scalability into the overall um, equation. But because that's where most startups fail is that second stage, that's where the value of experience added to that equation is really important. You know, venture capital um, firms, various firms will apply that experience 
along the way by way of mentorship from a distance. But I think that, that, that there are the notion of a venture studio where you have an apprenticeship model that are working as an extension of the startup is injecting that level of experience. And, and from a fund standpoint, it's incre- it, it, it should increase the batting average or the hit rate of that other 70% that's failing. So the idea is you're increasing the likelihood of success and, and actually accelerating the timeframes. Thank you very much. I don't see any hands raised, so I'm going, oh, okay, Eric Simone, talk to me. Well, let me let me chime in on that. Um, yeah. I completely agree with Don. Experience matters, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great to have that, that youthful exuberance and that, that, you know, no kids, no wife, I can jump off and start whatever I want, right? <laughs> but man, um, having been through uh, the wars uh, and having uh, several scars, uh, that's valuable, right? I've got, I'm lucky. I've got experience on my team that goes from 20 years old to 60, right? That were CTOs at, at, at public companies and they've got the, 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 the war wounds to prove it. But when you can mix those levels of experience together, you greatly de-risk the future because you've got people that have seen it before. Eric, I'm going to add one comment to your opening line that you said, hey, no kids, no wife. What about no kids, no husband? I can do anything I want, Okay. Eric? Okay. Uh, Jim, go ahead. Talk to me. Very simple. Why do you want to step on the same landmines that somebody else has? <laughs> there you go. I think Eric just froze. Eric will come back to us when he can. He froze in the middle of trying not to respond to my comment about gender. Okay, let's go to uh, next up is Chris. Chris, I picked I pick prediction number three from you. I thought this was interesting. You say startups will need to have an element of ESG, societal consideration. You can unpack that. I know what it is, but tell the audience as more and more employees are looking for that as a part of the companies they in they join. And uh, we've been blaming this on millennials, right? We've been saying that millennials were the ones who said companies need to have values and a social conscience and make contributions to cultures, to societies, to people around the world as part of their doing good. So Chris, talk to me. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that it's um, just millennials. I actually think that it's starting to permeate the culture generally. And yes. in ESG, we mean environmental concerns, social concerns, and corporate governance concerns. And those environmental concerns are everything from um, sustainability to the climate crisis. They're, the social concerns are everything from diversity to human rights. And the, the corporate governance concerns are how the company operates, how it treats its people, how it compensates its people, what benefits are provided, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I think, and I'm speaking as somebody who has a couple of 20-year-olds, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and um, I would tell you that the youth is certainly pushing all of us toward um, in, incorporating ESG into our business plans and into our business activities far more aggressively than we ever have. But I'm not just seeing it with that generation. We're, we're doing some work right now with a company that has a public mission, but is also private equity backed. And the responsiveness to that from very senior level executives um, at very senior at very senior levels has been extremely positive. So I think that um, startups are going to continue to push that envelope and they're going to continue to push that mentality into our into our ecosystems. And I think, uh, frankly, that's a good thing. Thank you very much. I do too. And yes, I was just mentioning that I think we were made aware of this this focus on doing good by millennials a couple of years ago when we talked about them as a group. We didn't understand them. Who are you? Why are you here? Well, now they're now they're running companies. <laughs> they have money to burn. They're managing. They're right. They're they're bosses. They they have matured. I think they're in their forties already. Oh my goodness. Who knew? Let's go to Jim Kenyar. Jim, I'm looking at prediction number one. The more successful startups over the next two years will be increasingly focused on delivering outcomes versus tech stack solutions. Jim, very interesting. Unpack this for me, please. Well, first of all, the reality is the precursor to the Internet of Things was called M2M. M2M existed 20 years ago. I was involved with that early on. So this platform, this all-encompassing platform of IoT is not new. It has matured. And as politically incorrect as it sounds, the big guys tend to own the platforms, the core platforms. What does that mean? 
now that you have an IoT that can reach every manufacturer, every customer, every product, what it means is you start pushing solutions out from the core platform. And what do you have to do if you're selling a solution out to the end users? You have to find people who have pain and you have to solve their problem. Thank you very much. Tech startups will invest more heavily in engineering to build build core intellectual property to differentiate from the major cloud vendors. This is a very targeted prediction. Eric, talk to us before your wife pulls the power strip again. Go ahead. Well, I'm seeing this uh, trend already happening. Um, Look, there's, there's a lot of great tools out there to build your software, right? Um, um, and, And they're fabulous. But when everybody's building on the same platform, your IP is going to be watered down. And I'm seeing, look, I'm an internet of things. Uh, core IP is critical there to do things like scale securely to millions of devices at once. And um, the traditional ways of doing things don't hold water uh, at that scale. And that means you have to invest. You know, I joke with my team that someday I may write a book and call it bloated startup which is exactly opposite from Lean Startup because a bunch of engineers arrogantly putting their head down and creating IP over eight years and patenting that IP is not the easy way to go. But when you do that, you differentiate yourself. If you're wrong, you're dead. But if you're right, you're a big winner. So it's risky, but I'm telling you, I'm seeing a trend of more people building that core IP and taking the longer road to deliver value uh, to their customers. Thank you very much. Yes, I see a hand. Jim, talk to us. I totally agree with Eric, except for one caveat. If you have phenomenal IP and you don't solve somebody's problem, it doesn't matter. Totally agree. Yeah, so you've gotta be right. And uh, that's the risk, right? Because what if, what if you're not? Well, you know, you could be safe, and, and, and play it that way, or you could take the shot and either win or lose. It's kind of the way I look at it here. Don, join us. Yeah, so I, I also agree with Eric, but I think that the, the companion piece that has to be there is the, the go-to-market element that gets that great IP in circulation on an iterative way with customers so the product market fit is adapted along the way. When, when I, one of the companies that I ran you know, back from 2008, uh, 2002 to 2010, um, we had a complex event processing platform and our engineers in New Jersey were all like PhD mathematicians and we were talking about the interface and they were saying, well, I don't know, it, it seems fine to me. And I'm like, yeah, but you're all PhD mathematicians. The average person isn't gonna think like you. And we needed to get that, that interface but that was a critical part because people weren't going to use something that wasn't accessible. So I think the engineering component is absolutely important, but, but iterating it through a customer process is what gets you to the overall product market fit. Don, are you suggesting that hardcore engineers don't like user interfaces? Because I've experienced that here. No offense to my team, but I understand that problem 100%. And we've, we've, we've adjusted. <laughs> Jim, join us again. Go ahead. Can I tell just a 30-second story? Tell, tell, tell a 40-second story. Who's counting? When, when I was running my M2M company, one of my large investors asked me to go down to San Diego and look at one of the companies they had invested in that was a mesh computing company. They had $80 million invested, and they had one customer. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that they weren't solving a problem. They had some very unique technology, but they weren't solving a real problem. Yeah, yeah go ahead, Eric, please. One, uh, I'll, I'll add to what Jim said. When you're burning $80 million and you don't have more than one customer, th- that's all you need to see, right? Be capital efficient. <laughs> like, I, can't, I cannot stress that loud enough. Um, uh, it seems like the trend these days is raise as much money as possible and create as much hype and then go figure out how to build a product. The search for the unicorn. Yeah. There you uh, go. For every one unicorn, there's several thousand dead puppies. So. Oh, dead puppy. <laughs> no, 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 not on my show. I, I, uh, what about longevity? Let me, let me give you all a story. I was just reading in, in the Times. I won't tell you which one I read every morning at 5 o'clock when I wake up too early to work. 
Yes, for me, that's even too early for work. Uh, There's a young designer, I believe his first name is Telfar, and he's been in the background designing clothes and handbags and accessories for years and didn't get much attention, didn't get much money, didn't get much much glory, and now he has become the vendor of the new, if anybody knows what a Birkin bag is, these were coveted handbags by women and other people around the world that went for thousands. They they were black marketed. They were held in back of stores for the last year's model because people wanted wanted them, they'd pay anything. People searched and resold them on eBay for tens to $10,000 or more for a handbag. Well, he has become, come into his own after waiting for years for recognition. And now his bags go in a matter of minutes, limited edition. People can't get enough. He is the darling of the, of the couture world right now, but he waited his turn. Is there any value in startups just quickly around the table, Don, in, in taking maybe that one customer at 80 million dollars investment and saying okay in another 12 months my time will come our time will come is is there a time when you want to fish and or cut bait don let's just go around the table what do you think don first and then chris then jim and eric yeah a hundred percent um you know cardinal rule number one fail fast so if you have 80 million dollars to spend and you're gonna just drive through that just buy a vineyard and become a cliche I'll tell you offline why that's so funny and almost embarrassing, not for me, but a friend. Uh, Chris Morgan, what about Fisher Cut Bait? What do you think? I absolutely agree with Don. Fail fast. Fail fast. Jim, what do you think? You're not growing, you're dying. Okay. Maybe in the fashion world it's different. I don't know. You can wear your stuff around, right, and create your brand, be your own influencer. Eric, thoughts? You know, I, I fail fast if you can, um, If, but I've, I've – I've, I failed slowly and then stopped failing. So, so I, I, I've kind of gone against that trend with Clearblade. Um, so I really can't say uh, you've got to be resilient. You've got to be, uh, you've, you've got to be uh, cost effective and you've got to, you got to be able to, to deal with sleepless nights. You just got to deal with the pressure, right? And power through if you truly believe and you have people around you that truly believe. I, I got to add one thing, Bonnie, you don't yes. know my background very well. But I can tell you that I took four years off from tech and I ran a women's wholesale clothing business. Oh, my. I failed miserably. <laughs> so uh, I know how to fail fast in things that I do not know anything about. Uh, my wife is a, is a stylist. She ran a women's clothing store here for 10 years. I got into that business. Uh, and then I decided, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. The, the, the better way to do this is just create a wholesale clothing line and sell it. Uh, Stick to what you know. That would be my advice. I've got a degree in computer science, not fashion design. And um, it's a great way to burn through a lot of your own personal money. Uh, so, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I know how to fail fast. I was starting this business and I had a shipment of fabric coming from China and they changed the price on me halfway through the ocean. And I had no choice but to say, OK. And I'm like, I got to get out of this business because I don't know what I am doing. You just changed the title of my show to Technology Revolution, True Confessions from Failed Entrepreneurs. Oh, I can, I can fill up a, a good hour or two. Thank you, you very much. I'm, I'm sure you meant well, and I'm sure somebody enjoyed your designs and your products. Arabelle, Let's if anyone has a pair of uh, yoga pants from Arabelle, stick with them. <laughs> Put them, on, put them on eBay and good luck. Let's see if we can squeeze in another round of predictions. I put them in the chat for most of you. Eric, yours will come in a second. Don Deloach, prediction number two, corporate venture operations and corporate innovation operations will directionally migrate their scope to meet in the middle, which will steadily become their Goldilocks zone. I don't want to know where the three bears are. Don, talk to us. Yeah. So, you know, traditionally we've seen corporate venture capital arms and they, they were doing kind of asymmetrical bets by uh, a late stage series B or a series C. Uh, those are going to be expensive investments or expensive acquisitions. Um, they're going to on average be somewhere um, at seven years or beyond in terms of the life of the company. And, and that was always a, a pretty decent bet. But as technology advances faster and faster and faster, um, and I think The Second Machine Age is a great book to read about why that's happening, but technology is advancing faster and faster and faster, you're starting to see corporations start their own innovation labs. And that's basically like their own corporate accelerators where they're trying to get the idea on the napkin to the MVP, stage one entrepreneurship. The problem with that is that 
the the entrepreneurial or the stage one the stage one you know just getting the MVP company doesn't necessarily translate into something that you can move in and, and move the needle with from a from a corporate standpoint. So the idea is that you you want to try to get the 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 solution to a scalable viable uh, bet that can can make a difference for the company but do it where it's where it's more modern technology number one and two your investment in that company at that stage of the game is going to be way way less than what you're going to pay if you wait to to go out to the late stage series b so the idea is to push your push your cost down modernize the technology and and make a difference in a way that works economically as well as with the overall corporations. Thank you very much. Any comments on that? Everybody good? Okay, let's go to Chris Morgan. Prediction number one, the smarter, better startups will increasingly pay attention to creating diversity on management teams and boards. Hallelujah. Chris, talk to us. Yeah, and of, of course, because of what I do all day long, I come to the table here with a very biased perspective on what's important in business. And usually, frankly, I, I believe it's human capital first, all other capital later. And uh, I would also say that corporate America has done a very good job of playing lip service to diversity for a very long time. I've been recruiting now for 25 years and there have been heads of diversity and inclusion at large corporations for a very long time that have been relatively ineffectual for the most part. I think some societal, um, some societal troubles that we've had recently have really brought diversity and inclusion into the limelight. And we are finally at a point where not only large corporates, but startups, venture capital-backed startups, are starting to recognize the value in having different people with different experiences, with different perspectives and different ideas at the table. The value of that on, on the, the outcomes is irreplaceable. And uh, I think what we're already seeing in the venture capital startup world is um, a greater appreciation for that and much more inclusiveness on the board and on the management teams than we ever have. Thank you very much. It is about time, right? Anybody have any comments on that? I remember working for a big bank in New York, uh, stationed, well, headquartered down in a building that was the columns, remember the marble columns in the lobby of the building featured them. I worked for that bank as a marketing director, global cash management, actually. And I remember being told that they didn't like the way I dressed because I wasn't wearing $500 to $5,000 suits to work. And I was taken behind my, my the office one night and told, we're sending you for dress for success training because we don't like that you wear your silk scarf instead of around your neck. You put it in your hair and it has a bow on the side and you don't fit our culture. I was Promanded for that, even though I was the first one on the floor in this building at 7.15 every morning because of my early commute from Long Island. I remember diversity was not even accepted in terms of how you looked back in those days. It was seriously a problem. I remember female bosses who put a hold on everybody's reviews, controlled HR. I didn't get a review in one bank for five years. I was told you're never getting a raise. You're never getting a promotion here. I remember diversity on all kinds of sides. Of, of what I, I took a job once as a marketing director for a real estate company. After I was hired, I was told, we don't want you here. We hate you here. We don't want you. You're taking somebody else's position. You will never succeed. Diversity, bringing in somebody with a different view, different skill sets, quote unquote, back in the day, which may be a couple of decades ago for me, but it was rough out there. Just trying, you're hired for what your skills are, your point of view, your talents, and then you're told, Basically, middle finger, you're here, but we challenge you to survive. So I, I appreciate the, the quest for diversity, especially in startups, but only if it's sincere, Chris, only if people really mean it. If they say you're here and we want to work from you, we want to learn with you, we want to value you as part of the team. The lip service days of diversity that's got to stop, really, because people just get harmed. Sorry for the true confessions, but that's the way I feel about it. Let's go. Oh, go ahead. I just wanted to add one last thing. Yes. I, I would say that, uh, no offense to my investor brethren or clients, but when venture capital investors start worrying about and start thinking about diversity and inclusion, something's happening. Yep. 
Okay. Thank you very much for provoking me. I appreciate it, Chris. Okay. Let's go to prediction number two from Mr. Aganyar. I'm sorry. I just love your last name, Jim. He says, solutions will be increasingly expected to contemplate external integration, such as IoT devices, drones, 3D printing, and AR and VR. So would you unpack this for us? I love all the tech you put into this prediction. Jim, go ahead. Well, as I said before, the Internet of Things has allowed solutions and data and analysis to reach out to all tentacles in companies, to all end users. Then when you add new types of edge devices that I'll call drones and so forth, when you add new capabilities for 3D printing, all of these things are expanding what you can do and customers and companies are demanding to understand better what's going on. Short, um, short side story, mm-hmm. nine years ago, a very large sporting goods company was testing sensors in basketballs. Why? They wanted to know how they're being used, where they're being used. They wanted to be able to respond to questions from customers. That was nine years ago. So the platform IoT upon which all this is built has reached a point where it's perfectly capable with 5G especially to reach out and handle all sorts of solutions that eight years ago we probably couldn't even imagine. Yep. And that was nine years ago. I don't know if that's a, a, a century or millennium in real, tra- real time because we're now looking at things in terms of months and, and single years, right? 2020 was a year to remember that is seared in our, our brains, our hearts, and our bodies for a long time to come. And we're going in, in shorter time frames now. Eight years ago was a millennium ago. Okay. Yes. Jim, go ahead. I can just add one more little yeah. bit of data. And you, sure. there's all sorts of different sources for data. But one source says there are already... 32 billion devices connected through the Internet of Things, and in four years, it will be 72 billion. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I have a friend who's a diabetic who just got two brand new devices that are very interesting. One is a sensor that's on his arm that with a little push goes right into the arm under the skin. And he has a little device that every hour it beeps. He puts the device together with the, the little, it's a button on his arm and it tells him where his number is. It tells him a graph of how he's doing all day. It gives him a guide on what he should or shouldn't eat for lunch, for example, or for dinner. And then they gave him a pump. And the pump is on his on his tummy or on, on one, yes, on his tummy. And it will automatically inject the right amount of insulin based on what the sensor said. And this is brand new. He had to be trained. I don't. I think Medicare paid for part of it. He has to change the device and the sensor every three weeks. Get a new cartridge. Or get, it's not at the point where it's wear it forever and leave it. But it's amazing. He now carries around not only a phone but a couple of. He has, he needs a whole new bunch of pouches just to carry all of this connected technology with him. But it means no more jabs. No more insulin jabs after years. He's 80, by the way. Just wanted you to know people are still embracing tech and welcoming it. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Jim. Let's go to prediction number three from uh, Eric Simone. Eric says, vertically focused, flexible product offerings will be offered by a real, and you put real in quotes. You need to explain that to me, please. Real partnerships between hardware and software vendors. Oh, my. Talk to me. So real, uh, meaning there's a lot of partnership announcements in the wild, especially with IoT, and they're mostly lip service, like we just talked about in another topic. Uh, I'm talking real by combining folks that specialize in their industries, like bending metal and creating skids for oil and gas that measure methane for uh, uh, carbon footprint reduction, right? They work with the EPA and they partner with companies like Clearblade to deliver the software. So we're embedded in the solution and they understand their industry. What Jim said earlier is interesting and and I agree, it's billions of devices are being connected. I'll submit to you, it's way too slow and they're doing it wrong, mostly. We we have way too many IoT science experiments in in, in the wild (laughs) and lots of money being spent on system integrators building scaffolding that falls apart when you get past 2,000, 3,000, 10,000 connected devices. 
So what has to happen is hardened engineering that on the hardware side, gateway side, software side, vendors come together and you offer a solution and you may never even hear the word ClearBlade or Intel or Phoenix Contact, you name it, right? This is the trend we'll see, but flexible meaning that data flows into your enterprise system. Thank you. Jim, comment, go ahead. I would argue for the entrepreneur's perspective, the person who's building that startup to take it one level further, and that is pick an industry to focus on to solve the problem. You can always move to the next couple adjacent industries, but pick one. Don't try to spread this across multiple industries. Take your partners, target an industry, and make it happen, and then work from there. Thank you. I think we have time. we got four minutes left. I want to squeeze in one more prediction from Don. Number four, I'm going to read it fast. This is important. Alternative sources of capital will be perceived to be easier, more expedient, or less dilutive. And I had to look that up. Dilutive causing a reduction in the value of a shareholding. Don, quickly, I can give you about 90 seconds and then we're going to wrap. You're up. Yeah, I'm I'm not saying this is a universal truth across the board, but yeah, I've heard entrepreneurs talk about wanting to get to easier money or, or cheaper money as opposed to dealing with these big, bad venture capitalists, which are often referred to as smart money. But I, I think that the, there's a reason it's smart money. You know, some, some of the professional investors do the type of analysis and vetting that some, some entrepreneurs don't want to subject themselves to. That should be a little bit of a telling sign. That's all I would really say. Thank you very much. Gentlemen, I want to thank you all. And again, Don Deloach, you brought together an extraordinarily smart and charismatic panel. I appreciate all of you. Shout out to my engineer, Aaron Keller. We got about two minutes left. I just found a note to that. Uh, would we still be talking about this topic, do you think, if, if we all got together one year from today? I, I might invite you back automatically. Will we still be talking about the, the future of startups? Will it just be everybody will know all this stuff? Don, will we still be talking? Absolutely. Chris, what do you think? I agree. I think I, th- I think we're going to get smarter over time and we're, there are going to be standards and best practices set, but hey, yeah, we, there's still a lot to talk about. Thank you, Jim. Still a hot topic? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're all you're starting to see, it, as Don said, a change in the sources of funding. And that change brings all sorts of different issues into the picture. Okay. And Eric, you agree? Yes, absolutely. Everything changes every year, every month, and we'll have new angles on this topic. I was just approached to do a book interview on LinkedIn by a woman who is a female entrepreneur. And I said, well, I don't do book interviews, but I'd love to get female startup people onto a show to talk about that. And she said, I love it. She's already spoken to three of her co-authors in this anthology, this collection. I'm going to give her a date in October or November. So I hope you'll all be watching. I want to thank all of you. And I want you all put up your finger and I want you to do this. No, no. Uh, Chris, can you do that? Jim, come on. No, no, I want you to, okay. The no-no is, if everybody says the future is already here, the answer is no, no. That was yesterday's future. Today's future, come on, Chris, let's do it. We're still doing it. Today's future (laughs) hasn't happened yet, and we're all going to do our best to make it a better one. Shout out to Aaron Keller, my engineer at Voice America Radio for always being there. Aaron started working with me two years ago when he was 26. He's 62 now, and we're working on that. Everybody have a great day. Bye-bye, LinkedIn. Eric, you're my my best audience here. Bye-bye to LinkedIn. Bye-bye to Facebook. Voice America, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Guys, guests don't Thank you for joining us for Technology Revolution, the future of now. Mark your calendar to join host Bonnie D. Graham every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel to hear how technology is impacting your future now. Bye-bye.